In October of 1972, the pilot of a plane carrying members of a Uruguayan rugby team lost his bearings while flying over the Andes Mountains. Thinking that they were approaching the airport, he mistakenly began his descent too soon, causing the plane to strike a mountain, shearing off both wings and sending the fuselage careening down the slope where it finally came to a rest on a glacier. Despite the violence of the crash, 33 of the 45 passengers somehow managed to survive. But for the survivors, the worst was yet to come. For they were now stranded in a remote Argentinian valley, and given the pilot's confusion, their last reported location was incorrect, and no one knew where they were. After eight days of searching, rescuers were unable to find any trace of the plane and called off the search, concluding that no one could possibly have survived the crash and that all 45 passengers had died. With no help coming, the survivors were on their own, and the coming months would test them in ways that most people could not possibly imagine. After about a week, their meager supplies, mostly candy bars and wine, were gone, and soon the survivors began to succumb to sub-freezing temperatures and starvation, and they were forced to make a terrible decision, one that tested their humanity and that they would struggle with for the rest of their lives. With all of their food exhausted, the survivors resorted to eating the corpses of their perished friends. On December 10th, two of the passengers set out in a last-ditch effort to find help. Over a period of 10 days, and with no hiking gear whatsoever, the pair journeyed 38 miles and eventually ran into a Chilean mule herder who rode to a nearby town to fetch help. Finally, after 72 days of being stranded in the mountains, the 16 surviving passengers of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 were airlifted out of the crash site. When it was revealed that they had resorted to cannibalism to survive, their story made headlines across the world, fascinating all and angering many. The morality of their situation is certainly an ethical dilemma. But while they did it out of necessity, there have been plenty of instances throughout history where cannibalism is much more black and white, where the despicable deed is clearly nothing other than a blatant act of pure evil. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Well, guys, here we are, episode 15. Thanks for stopping by. I'm PJ, and this is actually kind of a big one. I have some news for you guys. Simply Strange has a Patreon now. To those of you who might not know, Patreon is a website that allows listeners to support their favorite creators through a monthly donation. And in return, these listeners get access to exclusive perks. Things like merch, behind-the-scenes access, shout-outs on the show, stuff like that. 
Um, I really want to continue making this show bigger and better, and this is a really great way for you guys to help me do that. So, yeah, as of this week, that's officially up and running. If you're able to, even if it's just a dollar, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can get more details at patreon.com slash simplystrange, and I'll put a link in the episode description as well so you can check that out. Thanks a bunch, guys. So that's my news. I'm excited about it, and I hope you are too. And now, this week's story. This is one that I've been sitting on for a little while now. Today, we are going to talk about cannibals. So, without further ado, this is the story of Sonny Bean. The origin of Sonny Bean is kind of a gray area in Scottish history, and really folklore might be a more appropriate word for it than history. The details are a bit scattered and there's plenty of dispute regarding various intricacies of the story, including when it happened and whether it ever even happened at all. But all of that aside, the generally accepted version of the story goes something like this. East Lothian is a historic county in southern Scotland, just east of Edinburgh. It's a beautiful part of the country, featuring picturesque landscapes covered in vibrant green pastures and rolling hills, dotted with the occasional castle. It's a coastal county, so it's also home to stunning golden beaches covered in soft sand, which are often juxtaposed by harsh cliff faces along the coastline and jagged rocks poking out of the sea. And it was here in the late 16th century that Alexander Sawney Bean was born. Sawney was born in a mostly agricultural community to working parents who made an honest but meager living digging moats and trimming hedges, as well as various other odd jobs. As Sawney grew older, his father began to introduce him to their trade, and the two began to work together. But there were a few problems with this. His father was violent. Nothing Alexander did ever seemed to be good enough, and as a result, he was often beaten. And on top of that, it quickly became apparent that Alexander had little interest in honest labor. He was lazy, reckless, and like his father, he was often violent. But what his parents didn't know, what no one could have known, was the extent of the evil pent up inside of young Sawney. All that was needed was a catalyst something to release his wrath. And before too long, that catalyst arrived in the form of a woman named Agnes Douglas. Agnes was vile. She shared Alexander's tendency for violence into anger and was even believed by some to have been a witch and had been accused of making human sacrifices and of summoning demons. So of course the two fell in love. They ran away together robbing and murdering indiscriminately as they made their way across the countryside until they eventually found themselves in Ayrshire, Scotland, along the western coast where they stumbled upon a cave. This cave featured an inconspicuous entrance that was little more than a small crack between two massive cliff faces. 
and they soon discovered that at high tide, the entrance of the cave was almost completely submerged in water, while the nearly one mile of tunnels beyond the entrance remained mostly dry. It was the perfect hideaway. So, Sonny Bean and Agnes Douglas moved in, and over the next 25 years, they called this cave home, committing unspeakable atrocities along the way. The coastline around the cave was fairly lightly inhabited at the time, but there were a handful of small mining towns not too far away, and it didn't take long for the Bean's presence to be felt all throughout the region in all of these towns. Suddenly, people began disappearing. Merchants and travelers moving from village to village often didn't return. At first, it was just a handful of people. But as the list of missing people began to grow into the dozens, and then into the hundreds, fear began to escalate. The local authorities began to organize search parties who set off into the wilderness in hopes of finding the missing travelers, or at least some clues as to what happened to them. But without fail, one of two things would always happen. The lucky ones would return empty-handed, having found nothing. And the unlucky ones wouldn't return at all. Time went on, and the list of missing continued to grow. As it did, tensions rose. Then, to the villagers' bewilderment, a startling new layer of mystery was revealed. Human limbs began washing up on the coast. Fishermen would sometimes return to town with dismembered arms and legs that they found along the water. These limbs often appeared to have been unceremoniously removed, with jagged cuts that sometimes even left marks on the bones. By now, people were terrified and seeking an explanation. Rumors began to spread as to what exactly was happening. But it was nothing more than a witch hunt, a desperate attempt to place blame on someone in hopes that it would stop the madness. And that someone, for many people, became the local innkeepers. Innkeepers had a bit of a bad reputation at the time, and they were often accused of robbing their patrons. So it wasn't difficult for people to take it a step further and accuse them of robbing their patrons and then killing them as well. In fact, the accusations were so strong and the resentment and fear towards innkeepers so intense that many of them left their business and took up new trades out of fear that they would be lynched. And these fears weren't unfounded because on multiple occasions, innocent innkeepers were executed. Their only crime having been to provide travelers a place to stay prior to their disappearance. Other rumors pointed to the more extraordinary, seeking answers in myth and folklore. Fear spread of creatures like redcaps, little murderous goblins that roamed the countryside killing travelers and soaking their caps in blood, and kelpies, a monster that inhabits rivers and appears to travelers as a horse, luring them onto its back before drowning them. Eventually, over 1,000 people had been reported missing, and the spat of rumors only served to intensify the cloud of fear looming over the region. Yet, somehow, all of the rumors and speculations paled in comparison to the truth. Given Sonny's lack of any useful skills and his abhorrence of the idea of working, the two needed to find a way to sustain themselves. They had shelter, but they needed food and supplies. Their solution was robbing travelers. But just robbing them wasn't enough. 
The despicable pair needed to make sure that there were no witnesses, so that they wouldn't be caught. They began to ambush travelers as they journeyed along the narrow, lonely roads that connected the various towns throughout the region. They killed them, collected their goods, and dragged their bodies back to their dark, decrepit cave. And it's here that Sonny Bean's true level of depravity was exposed. Once the body was back to the cave, Sonny would butcher it, and he and Agnes would eat it. Unfortunately, this new lifestyle of murder and cannibalism seemed to work out pretty well for Sonny and Agnes. And before too long, they started having children. Over the following years, the Beans cave filled with children, and then grandchildren. Their wretched, incestuous spawn were every bit as horrible as their parents were. From the day that they were born, they were taught to murder and steal, each one growing an insatiable desire for human flesh. Reportedly at its peak, the Bean clan consisted of 48 of them. And as the family grew in number, the amount of food that they required grew too. They began to go on more brazen hunts, sometimes taking up to six victims at once, who they would ambush and kill in coordinated military-style executions. And still, they left no survivors. Despite searching the coast where the cave was located, the townspeople never noticed the small, partially flooded cave entrance, and they had no idea the evil that lurked there just out of sight. One evening, Foster Kennedy and his wife Agnes were riding their horse home following a fair in the town of Girvin. The sun was beginning to go down, which was typically when the unseen terror was at its most dangerous. And they knew that, but in this instance the Kennedys weren't too concerned. The fair had drawn a large crowd of people from all throughout the region, and as they began their trek back down the road, there were dozens of other fairgoers not too far away that were heading in the same direction. There was safety in numbers, so Foster and Agnes calmly went about their journey home. But then something caught Foster's eye a short distance ahead of them. He began to see shapes materializing out of the darkness. He couldn't tell what they were at first, but they quickly began to take form. Kennedy reached for his pistol as he identified the shapes as a large group of disgusting-looking men and women. It was the Bean family a sight that no one had ever seen before and lived to tell the tale. They wore dirty, tattered clothes and were armed with an array of knives and swords, and they were swarming towards the Kennedys. And moments later, they had them surrounded. Panicked, Foster fired his pistol at them and began brandishing his sword, desperately striking anyone that came close to him. And for a moment, it seemed like he might be able to hold them off. He ran two of them down with his horse and grazed another with a bullet. But then, Agnes lost her balance behind him, falling off the horse and into the swarm of inbred cannibals below, where the unfortunate woman was met by a lethal storm of knives and swords and teeth. The women viciously murdered her, first ripping open her throat and lapping up the blood, 
before proceeding to tear the unfortunate woman apart and begin dragging her towards the woods. Her husband could do nothing but watch the horror unfold as he continued his attempts to fend off the onslaught that was being rained upon him. And then, finally, the tide shifted. A large group of 30 or so fairgoers who had been traveling a ways behind the Kennedys had caught up and stumbled upon the chaos that was unfolding in the middle of the road. The Beans, knowing that they had no chance against so much opposition, fled into the forest, leaving behind Agnes's mutilated body and a very traumatized Foster Kennedy, who was now the first person to ever have a run-in with the Bean Clan and survive. Foster explained to his fellow fairgoers what he had seen and what exactly had just happened, showing them his wife's corpse. Immediately, a group of men took to the woods to search for the attackers, while a second group accompanied Foster Kennedy to Glasgow to report the attack to the magistrate. This attack was the final straw. Officials were already well aware of the growing list of missing people. Now that they knew what they were looking for, it was time to expand their efforts and to put a stop to it. To the astonishment of the local townspeople, a few days after the attack, the king himself arrived at the scene. King James VI brought with him an army of nearly 400 men and a team of bloodhounds. The team began at the site of the attack, where Robert explained what exactly had happened. Then the bloodhounds began tracking the scent. A scent that I have to imagine was pretty distinct. They divided into groups of 30 or so men and began to scour the countryside in search of the beans. The hunt took them to all corners of the region, some groups scouring through the forest and others the coast. But even with all their resources, 400 men and the aid of bloodhounds, they were still unable to locate the Beans Cave, despite some groups walking right past it. But then, finally, one of the dogs picked up the scent near the cave and began barking frantically. There it was the narrow, nondescript crack in the side of a cliff, a feature that had gone completely unnoticed until now, blending in with the damp and gloomy rock features that surrounded it. It was certainly an ominous spot, but nothing could have possibly prepared them for the horrors that they would soon discover inside. King James rallied his men, wanting to make sure that they had sufficient forces to take on the Savage Bean family, and then, the men entered the cave. The stench of death and rot assaulted their senses as the men began their journey through the foul cave. Their eyes stung from the smoke of their torches, which provided their only light. Through the darkness, the men could see the plunder from the Bean family's raids. Piles of gold and silver were scattered about, as well as clothes, swords, and rifles. Massive amounts of wealth the result of years and years of robbery and murder. And then, there was what was left of the victims. The men could see that the walls were lined with various parts of the human body, legs, arms, hands and feet, all hung up on hooks driven into the stone, like dried beef, presumably waiting to be consumed. They found barrels of brine filled with more body parts being pickled for later consumption. And then, finally, in the back of the cave, they found the beans. The wretched family put up a brief fight, 
but were quickly subdued and restrained by the king's men. Once the men were sure that they had gathered up all of the beans, they led their captives back through the damp, putrid cave towards the exit. As the bean clan filed through the narrow exit, one by one, their reign of terror was over. The townspeople, many of whom had gathered around the cave's exit, could breathe a sigh of relief, and for the first time, they were able to see the faces of their antagonizers. The foul bunch reeked of death and wore tattered, dirty clothes. Their skin was gray from years hiding in the shadows, and then, Sonny Bean himself emerged. He was old, his back was hunched and his face was lean and haggard. He had dark circles below his eyes, and his hair was rough and matted. But despite his pathetic appearance, the air grew heavy when he was around. People gasped at the sight of him. They could tell that this man, this monster, was pure evil. King James, eager to bring swift justice to his new prisoners, sent riders to alert the townspeople of the Bean's capture, and made swift arrangements for the family to be transported to the Tollbooth, an infamous prison in nearby Edinburgh. But they weren't there for long. The Beans were given no trial, King James declared them to be enemies of mankind, and they were sentenced to death, effective immediately. Just a day after arriving in Edinburgh, the entire family was marched through town and then down to the shores of Leith, where they came to a slow and brutal end. An enormous crowd gathered along the beach to watch the execution, shouting curses at their one-time terrorizers as the men were attached to stakes. But before burning them, the king wanted to ensure that the beans suffered in the same way that their victims had. So he made the women watch as his men mutilated the male members of the Bean clan, cutting off their hands and feet and throwing them in the fire in front of them. While many of his sons and grandsons struggled to remain conscious, Sonny Bean never flinched. He never begged for mercy, and his hatred-fueled rage never failed. Even as the fire consumed his mangled body, he continued to yell threats and curses at King James and the gathered spectators until finally, he went silent. Next, the women too were burned at the stake, and just like that, the Bean's reign of terror was over. The crowd breathed a collective sigh of relief, eager to begin their new lives free of the unseen devil ravaging the countryside, a luxury that the region had not seen for the last 25 years. The story of Sawney Bean's cannibal clan is certainly a fascinating one, let's get that right. But the devilish family is shrouded in mystery, and the accuracy of the legend is widely disputed. While the story has become one of history's best-known examples of cannibalism, outside of the stories passed down from generation to generation, there are very few actual historical records of it, and the source of the legend is a bit of an unknown. 
The story of Sonny Bean first appeared in an early newspaper around 1700 in Carlisle, England. In a time that the news favored stories of gore and heroism, this story was an instant success. The newspaper flew off of shelves, and before long, people all over Carlisle were talking about the story of Sonny Bean. And soon, the story was printed in other bigger markets like Hull, Birmingham, and eventually London as well. And so the story of Sonny Bean had entered the wild. But what was the source? The problem with the story is that there really isn't one. None of the records of the time give any indication that Sonny Bean ever existed. There are no records of those missing, no records of King James VI, whose whereabouts were constantly being recorded, having any involvement with a cannibal clan. Nor are there any records of the execution. At the time, it was not uncommon for newspapers to blur the line between fact and fiction in order to suck people in and bolster sales, and it's believed by most historians that this story is an example of that. Perhaps fueled by a few kernels of truth, or pieces of other legends perhaps, but otherwise engineered as a way to sell more papers. In fact, the story does closely resemble the story of Christy Cleek, another early Scottish cannibal legend. Still, others believe that the story was invented by the English as a form of anti-Scott political propaganda possibly in response to a Scottish rebellion that had occurred in 1745. But still, other historians dispute this as well, arguing that the newspapers printed more than their fair share of pieces on English criminals, which would have been counterproductive had their goal been to spread anti-Scott sentiment. Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing for sure just how much of the story is true, and it remains in a gray area somewhere between history and folklore. Perhaps it was based on a kernel of truth that over the years was exaggerated and blossomed into the story that we have today. Perhaps it was all made up. Or perhaps there's more truth behind the story than records show. While the Bean Clan's hold on the region ended that day on the shores of Leith, there is one final story left to be told. For one member of the Bean Clan managed to survive the execution, their youngest daughter. As the male members of the Bean Clan were being executed, Alec McDouglas, a man from Girvan, spotted the girl, who was so young that she could barely walk, and he took pity on her believing that someone so young could not truly be evil, that she could not have taken part in the crimes of her family, and that executing her would be unjust. He felt so strongly that he pleaded his case to King James, who conceded, under the condition that Alec would raise her, keep her out of trouble, and never let anyone know of her true bloodline. As it turns out, Alec and his wife had been unable to have children, so this arrangement seemed perfect for both them and the young girl, whom they named Lily. The McDougluses brought Lily to Girvan to live with them on their farm just outside of town. At first, Lily seemed to adjust well to her new life and showed no lingering effects from her previous life among monsters. Her parents helped her plant a tree in town, a tree that would grow as she did. The family was happy, 
But then, tragedy struck. A nasty plague broke out, killing both of the McDouglases and sending Lily's life into turmoil. As the story goes, Lily had developed an unhealthy attachment to the McDouglases, and with them gone, she began to live a life of solitude, rarely leaving the home and developing a strange reputation around town, where many people began to believe that she was a witch. And then finally, everything fell apart one day at church. A man who had been at Leith the day of the execution and taken an oath of silence after seeing McDouglas bring home one of the Bean children, broke his oath. He told the congregation that Lily was actually a Bean, filled with evil and a product of unholy incest. A mob quickly formed, storming to Lily's house and dragging her back to town, where they hung her from the tree that she had planted with her parents years ago. If you needed to pick me up for the day, something to get the, the mood lifted up a little bit, then I hope you have other plans beyond this podcast, because in hindsight, this was quite a downer. <laughs> Be sure to check out Simply Strange on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook for all kinds of weird and wild updates. And a huge thank you to my inaugural three supporters on Patreon, Candice A., Chris W. and Corey S. You guys are awesome, and I really, really appreciate your support. And that's a wrap. As always, thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone enjoyed this week's episode. Simply Strange will be back in two weeks with another spooky story for you. And until then, I would like to introduce you to a new show that I think you'll really like. It's called Beyond Bizarre True Crime was a very memorable, shocking, and bizarre crime that happened. Seems almost too bizarre to be true. Charged in a bizarre... Accused of dressing up as a clown. The bizarre twist in this story. The break they needed in this bizarre case. The damage that this man has caused so far. We've never seen anything like this. Welcome to Beyond Bizarre True Crime. These are the stories that'll make you wonder if they came from Hollywood, or if Hollywood took it from them. Available on your favorite podcast app or online at Beyond Bizarre True Crime.